We are in for a real treat today, everyone. If you've never heard of John Lilburn, a famous leveler activist from the English Civil Wars, well, strap in. Professor Michael Braddock from the University of Sheffield has given us the first major biography of freeborn or honest John Lilburn in five or six decades. His new book, The Common Freedom of the People. John Lilburn not only fought almost his whole life to establish key legal rights that have become bedrock parts of Western society. He was also the first king of trolls. For every libertarian out there you know who refuses their social security number or hangs baggies with their license and registration out of the car window rather than talk to a police officer, for every person whose life has been saved by a jury, you have a hero in John Wilburn. Let's get to it. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. So we have covered the English Civil Wars a bit uh, in several episodes very early on in the show, um, but can you quickly give us a background uh, to the fighting, the actual fighting in the English Civil Wars and how that comes to impact the life of John Lilburn? Sure. The, the, the war was uh, perhaps the most bloody that the English people have ever been involved in, actually. Um, 10% of the population was in arms, the male population, uh, and the death rate uh, for Englishmen was higher than in the First World War. So it's very traumatic fighting, uh, which took place in, in defined fronts, but also in skirmishing all over the country or nearly all over the country, so that almost everywhere had some experience of the fighting. Those places that didn't have experience of the fighting probably had experience of the administrative effort needed to sustain the war. Um, and there was also a lot of defensive destruction of property. One estimate is that as much as 20% of the country's um, urban property was destroyed creating safe positions, uh, siege readiness and so forth, or or in the course of military action. So it's very traumatic, not just for the men on the front, but for the whole country. And my estimate in my early research was that the tax burden in the country, for example, had gone up by a factor of 20 in order to support the war. And all this seemed to pose threats to rights and liberties uh, in addition to the, the bare threat of... Um, uh, uh, military suffering and military occupation and so forth, uh, there was a deeper worry that the war was actually worse than the cure and that, in fact, nothing was really worth all this suffering. So as the war proceeded, uh, people's commitment to the initial cause could be compromised or they could think that this suffering justified much greater gains than had initially been aimed at and the the coalitions became rather unstable as the costs of war escalated and and the uncertainty of what would secure a peace increased and out of that came some really radical thinking uh, by people experiencing trauma and anxiety but also an invitation to great creativity now, a famous phrase to describe the era is the world turned upside down, uh, that absolutely everything about 
English life, normal English life seemed to change in this period. Everything changed. People on the inside were pushed to the outside. People on the outside made their way on into the inside. Uh, all sorts of things about life were revolutionized. And you have this massive historical space opened up for someone like John Lilburn. <laughs> so can you please tell us tell us about his early life and the sorts of experiences he had that prepared him for a career as leveler pamphleteer? Well, he was the second son of a gentleman. And like many such, he went into an apprenticeship. So he was not a, a member of the dispossessed or, or a plebeian in any ordinary sense, but he wasn't a natural um, figure in national government. And in fact, he never held a public office. He never established a secure trade and he never established a landed estate. So in 17th century terms, he was an outsider, although from a gentry background. What gave him his uh, the force <laughs> that drove this remarkable life, I think, was radical religion. In the 1630s, he became convinced that the English church came from Antichrist and that believing Christians had a duty to leave it um, and that it would be improper for a Christian to listen to the preaching of an Anglican minister, even if that minister happened to be well-intentioned because that minister had been appointed by uh, the Antichrist, all this very inflated rhetoric for a modern ear. Um, but what's interesting about him is that he didn't so much try to establish that as the normal religious position in the country. He sought to prevent the suppression of his views. And in order to avoid the suppression of his views, he fought for legal freedoms, which applied to people who didn't share his religious views. So that's a kind of a roundabout way of saying that he embraced a radical religious project, but he defended it by secular legal means. And he embraced the vision of uh, suffering Christian martyr. He, his life was full of suffering and hardship and undoubted bravery. But he never suffered for co-religionists. He always suffered for legal freedoms. Um, and that's the foundation of his lasting legacy. People in subsequent generations who would have found his religious beliefs completely bizarre and unpalatable found his defense of legal freedoms extremely useful and valuable. And he became associated with uh, the group uh, called the Levelers, uh, which some historians consider sort of the first political party. Uh, it seemed to me that that you were sort of saying, wow, that's a little inaccurate. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch to really call them a party, um, but it is certainly a significant movement. Um, what what kind of leveler is John Lilburn? Yeah, I, 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 so I take that. I think there are two points there. Firstly, on the levelers as a party, I, what I've done uh, is try to talk about mobilization in, in the English Civil War and how people mobilized at different moments for different purposes. And, and I see the leveler movement as one such mobilization. In, in 1646 and 47, Parliament had won the war, but it wasn't clear what would secure a lasting peace. And the leveller answer was a defence against tyranny. It wasn't just enough to balance the powers of the Crown and Parliament. What had become clear was that parliamentary uh, command could be equally tyrannous. And, and the war was not really between Crown and Parliament. It was between the people and tyranny. And so behind a programme to secure the people uh, against tyranny, uh, another coalition formed of people from very different backgrounds, but who thought this was the peace 
that would last. And they sought that peace in, uh, through um, the institution of popular sovereignty and electoral reform so that the nation's governors could be recalled by the people if they proved tyrannous. So they all agreed on that end, but they came to it from very different backgrounds. And, and Lilburn's was a personal experience of what he saw as parliamentary oppression and betrayal. Um, others came from it from a much more, and, and Lilburn's inspiration is very much the English common law. Uh, others of his collaborators were much more inspired by classical ideas, by the Roman uh, Republican um, tradition in particular, uh, or by a more um, articulate uh, view of Christian egalitarianism, Christian equality. So th there were different ideological roots to supporting this particular peace settlement. It was yet another one of the coalitions of the 1640s. Um, a, th a couple of reasons for insisting on that. One is that it, it, it um, places the levellers as an example of something much more general in the 1640s about mobilisation. Um, and, and in my book, I'm trying to say an interest of the 1640s is this is the establishment of mobilisation as a way of doing politics and, and the models they used were used by subsequent generations. So one reason for insisting on on the on on mobilization is because i want to make a connection with people with completely different purposes who nonetheless operated in a similar way the, the reason to resist the the party term i think is because of this um there's no very clear ideological program there's a program of action which these people are pursuing so it's not a party in a, a sense that we would now really understand that and uh, it's not a party in the sense of membership, card-carrying membership, um, party discipline and so forth. It's more people attracted to this programme and mobilised around it. Uh, and when the programme fails, they go off on different direct, in different directions too. So I think it's a more accurate um, way of understanding what the, the level of movement really was. The, the insistence on uh, the Levelers as a first party came out of a, a generally um, modernisation theory-based view of, of the 1640s, that much about modern politics was founded in the 1640s. And I agree with a lot of that, but I don't think modern political parties were founded in the 1640s, and I, I don't think the Levelers are really um forerunners of of in britain the the modern conservative or labor party structures i think they operated in a very different way now talking about people who operated in a very different way the true levelers or the diggers are some of my favorite people from the period <laughs> um and it, you mentioned about lilburn that he had a a very focused uh legal program um, and it was basically based on the agreement of the people and the vision that he saw of you know, popular sovereignty, like you said. But he definitely did not go as far as some within the Leveller Coalition. Uh, those around people like Jared Winston Lee uh, said, basically, enough is enough with these aristocrats and haggling with them in parliament. We're going to get straight to the work of reclaiming the commons ourselves. We're going to go dig up the ground and scratch out a subsistence of our own without authority because they don't actually own this land anyhow. And we all know it. So we're just going to go claim it, uh, reclaim it for ourselves. Um, and, and there's a lot of distance between those two types of levelers. And I wonder if you could tease out that thread. 
Sure, yeah. I, I think, um, again, talking about Lilburn in particular, it's important to remember that gentry background that I mentioned. He was very proud of his gentry heritage. And, for example, in court uh, on trial for his life in 1643, early 1643, he refused to answer until they stopped calling him the son of a yeoman because he wouldn't have recorded in a court record. He wouldn't have it as a matter of record that he wasn't a gentleman. His father fought uh, for a, a land dispute over which had boiled on for five generations, I think, in the Lilburn family and, and couldn't be resolved because crucial documents had been destroyed. And his father was the last person in England to demand the settlement of a property dispute by trial by battle. Um, and I think that tells you a couple of things about uh, Lilburn. It's a commitment to your established rights and, and liberties and uh, the honour of defending them by whatever means you can do can do that. And I think that's uh, uh, as much a gentry thing as a Puritan thing. And it's a key part of John's politics is that he's standing up for um, established rights and uh, and and doing that in the by the means open to an honourable Englishman. When he did secure a landed estate um, in reparation for his sufferings, the parliamentarians gave him um, reparation for his persecution under Charles I. He, he bought lands and was then accused of being a very oppressive uh, landlord. Um, one of his tenants walked to Westminster barefoot and stood at the doors of the hall saying, um, Lilburn is is a, a tyrannous landlord, and I mean, that had a political background. But it, I think, it shows that John's vision for himself was that of a landed gentleman, and um, uh, or an established trader of some. If he couldn't be a gentleman, uh, and that owed a lot to his family background. Now, all that's really different from Jared Winstanley, the um, true leveller or digger. When Stanley came from a similar background to Lilburn, but his route to radicalism was not the experience of parliamentary tyranny so much as of an immediate religious revelation of the millennium and of a radical Christian equality. And the Digger uh, community that Win Stanley led was, was led by that millennial Christian belief that uh, Christ was... Uh, the return of Christ is imminent and that, that people should overcome the corruptions of human life that, that had um, accumulated since the time of Christ. So I, th- I think they're really quite different um, impulses and urges. Lilburn, um, rather conservative in that sense, uh, establishing or re-establishing the rights of the freeborn Englishman and Win Stanley looking to a completely redeemed world in which Christ can happen into which Christ can happily return and so although they might uh, cooperate over the form of a political settlement they're doing so from quite different backgrounds and with quite different purposes and I think it's one reason why the term leveller is unhelpful if we understand it as a party position or a party membership rather than a cooperation over a particular police uh, peace excuse me uh, cooperation over a particular peace settlement at a particular moment. You know, yeah, that makes me wonder um, because I know during the Putney debates there is mention of how uh, at least I think it's Colonel Rainsborough saying this that uh, he was opposed to grants of incorporation. Uh, 
and other other artificial powers and privileges that even a parliamentary government, uh, even just the House of Commons without a House of Lords, you know, it doesn't matter how close to the people he was opposed to the grant itself of special powers and privileges. I wonder what is Lilburn's intellectual relationship to government granted power and privileges, even if it is a you know the the sovereign people doing it through their representatives. Now, yes, now this is a very good question, but also a rather tricky one because uh, in this period, uh, it's hard to tell who's writing what, even in the same pamphlet. So many of these pamphlets are co-produced. So my feeling, having followed Lilburn into the Leveller movement and then out, is that his view on that is is fundamentally about the law that. Um, the free the, the rights of a freeborn Englishman are infringed by prerogative rights of monopoly. And for him, monopoly is a legal category, and he thinks that it's objectionable in all forms. So he objects to a monopoly over printing, a uh, monopoly over um, religious, um, over, expound, over expounding scripture. He refers to Presbyterians and Anglicans as monopolizers. Um, and he's opposed to monopolies in trade as well. But for him, I think those are primarily uh, legal infringements against his common law rights um, and the, the rights of everyone to practice. And in fact, after um, He's acquitted for treason in, uh, of treason in 1649. He tried to gain access to the inns of court to get a formal legal training, claiming that it was the right of every freeborn Englishman to enter a, an inn of court and that any attempt to stop him doing that was the exercise of another monopoly. So I think there's a consistency in that strain of argument in Lilburn, but in some of the same pamphlets or pamphlets that carry his name or pamphlets that seem to contain his words, people are arguing against monopolies on much more abstract grounds um, of Christian egalitarianism in particular, that there's a kind of spiritual equality among men and that uh, any attempt to restrain or or contain the expression of uh, of the Christian potential of an individual represented a restraint on on God's will for the world. So um, again, I think there's this problem that the levelers say they want the same thing, but they want it for very different reasons, and it's not always clear exactly what each of them want. Um, yeah, so I, I I think that's the he he's. The implication of that, though, that, that you're hinting at in your um, question is that Lilburn's not in favour of um, a complete equality. He's in favour of equality before the law and equal access to common law rights for those who have been born to them. Uh, it's a more limited claim than the more fundamental claims deriving from um, scripture or from the classical republican tradition, I suppose. Now this is a guy who he he died fairly young in his forties, I believe, right? Um, yeah, and yeah, forty-two. During his adult life, at least, he spent most of his time either in prison or in exile, <clears throat> and a good deal of his free time, <laughs> such as it was, uh, 
preparing for the next battle in court or the next <laughs> basically political stunt. I mean, he he's an early modern he's like the king of early modern trolls and great political activists. He's a pioneer in both of these things. He really seriously knew how to troll and would have been a hit on on YouTube today. You know, I <laughs> speaking of which, I mean, we here we record one day after the no confidence vote yeah. uh, for Theresa May, where she's now claiming, "Oh, we we won the confidence of Parliament." <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, don't don't don't. It's just cruel to ask me about these things. He really <laughs> would have would have been a star today, uh, and I think of him as sort of the greatest troll who ever lived. And by trolling the English courts. He helped reestablish all sorts of fundamental rights to the English legal tradition, things that that are enshrined in our American constitution and recognize the world over as fundamental human rights. So tell tell us about his battles in court. Well, I think that, I mean this is the the key to his success. He he beat um public trials for his life um three times. Um and that he was in, important enough to be put on public trial for his life three times suggests his public appeal, just as his uh, the, the jubilation that greets his acquittal each time so reflects his public appeal. And as I've already said, none of that comes from the normal sources of influence in 17th century England. He's not a gentleman, he's not a major merchant, and he never has a public office. It's all from his success in mobilising sympathy for his cause. And he does that primarily by laying claim to being a martyr. He says the sufferings are brought upon him and that he's suffering for everyone. And Overton says on his behalf at one point, Lilburn's sufferings today could be yours tomorrow if we don't resist this tyranny. So he becomes a kind of symbol of what will happen to Englishmen if tyranny is not oppressed. And he, he has a real a, a real taste for it, but also a real gift for um, the dramatizing this claim so the taste even his best friend his best long-lasting influential political friend henry martin said you know when lilburn's dead you better bury john in one place and lilburn in another because if they meet in the afterlife they'll argue forever and a lot of jokes about lilburn being able to start an argument in an empty room and uh, just not being able to turn the other cheek when a more reasonable individual would see that this is no big deal and just get on with life. Um, so there's a, a persistent claim that he's not a martyr, in fact. He's just an extremely brittle, prickly, difficult man, a difficult neighbour. And that was really what the jury was asked about him in two of his trials. Is is he a defender of political freedom or is he, in fact, just a pain in the backside and we'd be better off without him? And he won those. He won that argument in, whenever it mattered, partly because of the second thing, his gift for dramatising his suffering. My, my favourite, my current favourite, is that in 1646, he, he'd fallen out with his military commander, his immediate military commander, who was then protected by the Earl of Manchester. And Lilburn escalated to um, a slander of the Earl of Manchester saying that he was essentially guilty of treason and saying in print the Earl of Manchester's head has stood too long on his shoulders. 
And he was called before the House of Lords to answer for this um, insult to a member of the House of Lords. And he could have expected a bit of time cooling his heels in Newgate. And um, he'd had five similar experiences the same year. But what he did was say that he to listen to the charge would be to um, abandon Magna Carta to allow the House of Lords to trample Magna Carta under their feet. Because he was not a lord, he could not be heard by the lords. They were not his peers. They were they were peers, but they were not his peers. And he dramatised this claim that the lords had no jurisdiction over him by sticking his fingers in his ears while the charge was read, saying that he literally couldn't hear the charge without tearing up without being the cause of the death of Magna Carta. And in a published pamphlet, he says, he, I, I could tell the charge had been read because the man's lips stopped re- moving. And he refused and he refused to. This, so this very dramatic display um, uh, escalated the, the dispute to a point where the Lords felt they couldn't ignore it. They imprisoned him in the Tower of London at their pleasure and and later reduced that to seven years. So <laughs> from from the case of being in a bit of trouble for saying something unguarded about the Earl of Manchester, he'd been in, imprisoned in the Tower for seven years for denying the authority of the House of Lords. And he presents this all as just something that happened to him, but it's clear that it was all premeditated. He knew he was going to be called before the House of Lords. He intended to escalate in this way. He'd chosen this theatre of putting his fingers in his ears, not you know, show, denying normal gestures of respect to the Lords, and he knew that he would invite their wrath. And he, it, it's absolutely Lilburn in a nutshell. He, he, he knew how to invite persecution without appearing to do so and then to appear as the victim and i have to say he he in doing so he made his case that the lords were capable of absolutely tyrannical action imprisoning someone for 7 years uh, for refusing to hear a charge strikes me as tyrannous so i i think i i think you're right i mean it, it it's that that stands at the heart of lilburn's character the hostile view is it's just kind of grandstanding and um troublesome behavior the more sympathetic view is he's got a real gift for choosing the moment and the way in which to invite people to show uh, their true nature. It takes all kinds, right? Look, we <laughs> let a thousand flowers bloom and all those sorts of things. You have to have at least one John Lilburn in the bunch. Um, <laughs> my my favorite uh, tactic of his is refusing to recognize his own name, his, yes. his own identity. <laughs> Tell us that story. Or se- it's really well, several he was, times. Um, <laughs> he, he was exiled in um, 1651 for again for libeling a member of parliament, and it was by um, uh, an ordinance of parliament which exiled um, Lieutenant Colonel John Lilburn for life on pain of death should he return. He returned two years later and standing in court, he would admit to being John Lilburn, but not being the Lieutenant John. Lieutenant Colonel John Milburn named in the act. Um, and it's the only time in his life that he doesn't publish as Lieutenant Colonel. He he was very proud of his military service, rightly so. He did proud military, did, did brave military service. And he, he always used his title and who can blame him for it. But he, he wouldn't do it during the trial because that would have been, that would have conceded that he was the John Milburn that the act had meant. Um, 
but that that trial in general, you know, he he he's been exiled on pain of death should he return to England. He's there in court, in front in the eyes of the judges, and he's clearly John Lilburn because he's held up his hand and sworn that he's John Lilburn, and yet he gets off, and he does it by all these means um, by. Uh, denying that he's the John Lilburn they really mean or denying that they can prove that he's the John Lilburn they really mean or, or by denying that it was ever proper legislation. He he demands to see a copy of the Act, uh, which they're very reluctant to produce and it suggests there was indeed some procedural error in the legislation. And, you know, it, it it's um, a, a, a real combination of tactical savvy um, and a kind of firm commitment to a real principle that it was in fact tyrannous to exile him for life because he'd said something rude about a member of parliament. Now, everybody who is familiar with, let's say, the John Lilburn type, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I think it's a fairly common personality archetype in political activist circles. Um, I, I might say even especially libertarianism. Um, <laughs> but it, he was very neglectful of the people closest to him and the people under his direct responsibility. So his his massive family, for example. Um, and there's such this there's such emphasis and and single minded focus throughout his life on essentially his own liberties and the abstract liberties of some abstract Englishman out there, but this almost extreme neglect of of his own family tell us about the the back you know, the, I, the negative I, side I, of john lilburn <laughs> i am um, uh, as this biographer I, I felt an obligation to honor honor the strength of his character because i i certainly don't have the courage and strength of character that he displayed i'm a much more pliant individual and i'm much less likely therefore to win any liberties for anyone. Um, so I, I'm very reluctant to just be critical of what I regarded as, as his personal weaknesses. But I, I have two daughters and I have to say I wouldn't want them to bring John home as a potential suitor. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's admirable but not likable and in, in fact some ways I think a bit monstrous. Um, so yes, he completely casual of his own safety and well-being, completely willing to submit to peril of his life in order to win a political argument. But that also involved uh, being casual of his, the well-being of his family. His, his uh, wife, Elizabeth stayed with him. She, she followed him into war, stayed in garrison with him. She moved into prison with him. They had a, a child called tower because he was conceived and born in the tower of London. Um, and she lived in poverty in the 1650s in John's exile and indeed lived on in poverty until at least the mid-1660s, 10 years after John's death, because uh, he'd been so casual of their well-being. She delivered 10 babies. Only four of them lived um, beyond John. Um, one of them uh, was born just after John's death. He, Elizabeth was... Uh, he, he he was on parole to visit his wife, who's about to go into labour, um, and he died, in fact, before the baby was born. So um, he didn't provide for his wife and children. None of them were established in the gentry uh, um, 
style that he would have wanted for them. Uh, and that was because of his remorseless, um, cautionless campaigning for what he believed in. But it, at the end of his life, he added to that sort of the fact that they were collateral damage in his own lack of concern about his own safety and well-being. It, it, there's a, there are some quite distasteful things he said to his wife at the end of his life when he converted to Quakerism and he he found peace for himself in letting go of worldly concerns and joined um, Christ immediately and personally. And that meant abandoning his family. And he wrote to his family saying, you know, I'm no longer, I, I, I'm, um, I'm now with Christ and, and you must, um, you should be too. And Elizabeth uh, wrote to him saying, we, we haven't got any money. Some of your enemies are willing to help us if you'll just unbend a little. Um, and his advice to her is to embrace the poverty that Christ says is so um, enlivening of the spirit. And uh, it's really hard, really hard for, for someone of my views anyway, to, to read those letters at the end of his life where it's not anymore that his own political sacrifices are impacting on his family. It's, it's uh, a kind of uh, religi- religiosity that seems to be unchristian. In, in his attitude to his wife and family. Hmm. Now, I mean, perhaps in some form of cosmic justice, uh, you remark in the book that Lilburn has been relatively neglected himself in, <laughs> in recent decades. And I believe if memory serves, you said this is the first major biography of him in 50, 60 years. Um, yeah. And I mean, while I I should note that I don't think libertarians have forgotten about him. I mean, he remains like a a key identifiable figure for them, at least from the English Civil Wars. That's that's historians and scholars. I mean, certainly the average American probably doesn't even know England had a civil war. (laughs) Much (laughs) you know, uh, much less that there were people like John Lilburn walking around uh, guaranteeing their rights for for you know centuries to come. but yeah. uh, you know, I wonder where. I would also note that it seems the hardcore, you know, Marxist uh, social historians who are still around they haven't forgotten about Lilburn either. So I wonder where does his memory fit into today? Yeah, I think it, it's interesting. In the in the in Britain, he's remembered primarily on the the left as a Democrat, and um, the campaign for an agreement of the people which was this settlement based on popular sovereignty and franchise reform, um, predicted 19th century parliamentary reforms by, you know, by a couple of hundred years. Um, and, and that was conflated in the British left with the movement towards other kinds of uh, rights for working people, redistributive um, economic policies and so forth. Um, and it, it, his high point, at the high point of Lilburn's um, historical fortunes in Britain came in the 50s and 60s when there was great hope for um, reform in Britain, economic and social reform, equality of opportunity, and the establishment of a meritocracy and so forth, which united a broader left with uh, the Marxist left around um, uh, democ- democratization in a very full sense. Um, I think the... Um, movement against that 
historiographically was partly motivated by suspicion of anachronism. Lilburn was not at all a, a 20th century Fabian. Um, but also a movement in British politics in general against that kind of post-war consensus of an activist state and uh, equality of opportunity and so forth. Um, uh, I think uh, I know much less, obviously, about the American political scene, but I, th- I think libertarianism has, has been a much more consistent force in America through those changes in political economy. You could be a libertarian in the 50s and 60s and also a libertarian under neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s. You could still value um, Lilburn as a libertarian. So I think his, the, the libertarian memory has been more durable in the 20th century than the memory of uh, the Democrat and so forth and and is also probably less anachronistic too so i think the contrast is that i i say uh, in the book that I, I think that in the america is remembered more as a libertarian and in british terms that's almost a right-wing position that we we don't see libertarianism quite the same way i think as it plays in america and so in in britain there's a, a left-wing memory of him but it's it's almost a little hostile to being associated with libertarianism as always our greatest thanks go out to professor braddock for joining us this week and for adding yet another patron saint to our show's pantheon of great heroes in the chronicles of liberty if good old Benjamin Lay is there for his over-the-top street theater, remember the Bible that bled pokeberry juice? And if Stephen Hopkins is there for literally creating self-government in the Americas, then surely Honest John belongs beside them, refusing to identify himself, chattering endlessly about ancient history and our long slide toward tyranny, fixated on the minutest of minutiae all the way through. It wouldn't be a very good group of libertarians if there weren't at least one John Lilburn in the bunch. Freeborn John, King of the Liberty Trolls. Thanks for listening. Liberty Chronicles is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Liberty Chronicles, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. Thank you.